Welcome to the Choosify radio podcast. We view the concept of financial independence as a life optimization strategy that helps you crush the game using a mixture of conventional and unconventional methods. My name is Jonathan Mendonza, a pharmacist pursuing financial independence, and my co-host's name is Brad Barrett, a CPA turned entrepreneur who reached financial independence through diligent savings and online business ventures. We host a twice a week show on Mondays and Fridays that focuses on living below your means, creating multiple income streams, straightforward investment strategies, tax optimization hacks, and travel rewards. This is what winning looks like. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. Hey guys, today we're going to be presenting the next part in the Side Hustle Coaching Series featuring Alan Donegan and Talis. If you have been with us for any period of time, you know that we featured Alan Donegan in episode 30 talking about the power of developing a side hustle or small business. And Alan inspired us to actually see if we could help someone in our community help build a business from scratch. We sent it out to our community. We had them send in their ideas, their feedback, and ultimately we came down to like six or seven finalists and we selected one person to get a year's worth of free coaching from Alan Donegan, bringing their business to life. In short, Talis won that competition and her passion is dance. That's her background. And she wanted to bring this passion to specifically help people with Parkinson's. There's apparently a good body of evidence that supports the fact that dance classes and dance specifically can have significant lifestyle benefits for people that are living with this disease. And it was incredible to really see her present this idea and then watch Alan latch onto that and help her take what really at face value is an idea with nothing behind it and help her flesh out how she could turn it into an actual business. Now, it would be unfair for me just to throw you into this episode and have you start here. So if you are unfamiliar with the background, I highly encourage you, go back and listen to episode 30. That will introduce you to basically Alan Donegan's framework to building a business that you can get excited about. And then from there, you're ready to listen to episode 56. That is the intro. That is the first part in this Side Hustle Coaching series. Once you have listened to both of those, come back and listen to this episode for the next part in the series. And it is so exciting to see the progress that has been made. Yeah, Jonathan, I know I am personally very excited to hear part two of this coaching series between Alan and Talis. And it sounds like there are really exciting things going on just from what I've heard here in the background and the recordings. So we're excited to bring it to the audience here. I know when we originally envisioned this, we talked about it being kind of monthly updates and obviously it's it's been a few months since part one, but now going forward, we're gonna do certainly much more regular updates with Alan and Talis here on the Friday Roundup. It seems like the natural way to do it, where we'll probably just review a little bit about the Monday episode, like in this case with Marla, and then we'll go straight into Alan and Talis's next coaching call. So that will really be the crowdsource aspect of this Friday Roundup. One quick housekeeping point just before I hop in. This past week, we brought on Marla, who had this incredible third-generation FI conversation and really introduced to us some kind of advanced group travel rewards techniques, which 
were absolutely fascinating. Uh, she promised to put together some worksheets. And for those of you in the audience that were ready to dig into that and ready to get started, she has actually set up an email account where you can get access to those PDF files in one place. Uh, if you want to look into that further, send an email to marlafytravel at gmail.com, marlafytravel at gmail.com, and you'll get a response with the link to the downloads all in one place. So definitely look into that. I know that there were a lot of you that sent us a request saying, hey, how can I get a copy of those worksheets? And yeah, it's been put together for you. Yeah, Jonathan, we uh, have something really cool coming up this upcoming Tuesday, June 5th. So it's going to be our first Facebook Live that we're ever doing with a live Q&A. And it's this fun thing called the Digital Dialogue that our local NBC station has on their Facebook page. So it's going to be this neat Q&A and all of our listeners and community are invited to to be there to watch it live. You could actually watch it after the fact if you don't want to be there live and ask questions, but it should be fun. So we're going to set up a short link at choosefi.com forward slash live. And unfortunately, we won't have the URL for the Facebook Live until it actually happens. So we're going to be like furiously updating that that pretty link. But it'll be at 11 a.m. on this coming Tuesday, June 5th. And yeah, choosefi.com forward slash live. And we're also going to post it in our Facebook group on our Facebook page and through our email list. So uh, hopefully you'll have a a nice, easy way of getting to it. And yeah, it should be a lot of fun. So uh, yeah, please join us, ask some questions and just be there to help support us and, and to maybe put a face to the, to the voice. So it should be cool. You know, I'm really excited to get right into the meat of this interview with Alan and Taos, but before we do that, how could we not talk about the amazing story that Marla shared with us this past week on Monday? Yeah, I totally agree, Jonathan. Of of course, she just really brought it with all the travel rewards info. And that was just a lot of fun. It was a great conversation. I think it gave the audience a lot of flavor on how you can put these trips together, what you need to look for with sweet spots and different award travel redemptions. So I think there's a lot of value just intellectually there. I think that's what a lot of people get caught up when it comes to travel rewards of how do I even approach this? And I know both myself and Marla really tried to explain how we mentally approach it. And then also some of the in-depth granular details that of course I'm sure went over some people's heads, but, uh, but I, I think it was useful. I think it was really useful. And once you get into it more, that might be an episode to go back to and listen to again and again, just to even pick up more of those little, little details that the real experts like Marla are employing. And I just love the fact that she's identifying as third generation Phi. Uh, that was really, you know, because the episode was so heavily weighted towards travel rewards, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the first 30% of the episode was highlighting the fact that these values, this way of approaching life carried down three generations. That's remarkable. I think that there's old sayings that basically talk about this fact that wealth is lost or essentially, you know, whatever whatever is made by the first generation is lost by the third generation. And it's interesting to see that when that's not the case, and I'm not talking about for the silver spoon people that have lawyers and attorneys and trust funds and all sorts of legal entities that are both being funded by making sure that wealth is preserved, but rather this path to financial independence is being tackled aggressively by the parents, by the child, and by the grandchild. That is a completely different frame, and it it speaks to values being passed down. And and I love that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I also thought it was cool how each of these generations are retiring earlier. I think she said something like her grandpa retired at around 60, her dad 
I think it was 53 or early 50s, and and for her it was 43. So that is really, really cool just to see that, like you said, these values are getting passed down and really from an earlier an earlier age. So it was also neat that both she and her sister are frugal, which, like Marla said, doesn't always happen, right? Like there are some times where one will follow and then the other child or children will just go out and spend like crazy. I've certainly seen many of those stories. So it's cool that they both internalize that. And yeah, it was it was very interesting to hear how her grandfather and her mom set up a series of accountability, not like tests, but but something to that degree where basically like her grandfather, they had to track all their spending and then come back and tell him what they had learned, right? Like I thought that was a really neat strategy, not just saying, hey, I'm gonna pay for you and it's all taken care of, don't worry, just go have fun. It's, no, I'm gonna pay for you, but I wanna make sure that you're getting something out of this that you're gonna take with you for the rest of your life, right? It's a teach a man to fish type scenario. And Marla's mom did the same thing with providing that allowance for the entire school year and giving it at the very beginning. And it's basically, that's a sink or swim moment, right? Like Marla could have went out and bought designer clothes and spent it all in a couple of weeks and then she would have had nothing. And at that point, right, that's a sink type moment where, all right, I made the wrong decisions. I've got to pay for it for the next nine months essentially. But incredibly, she actually did this right from the from the very first. So it sounds like Marla and her sister had their heads on straight from the beginning, but that said, they learned these lessons so, so early. So it's it's really a very impressive family story. You know, I feel like where I'm about to go next is like one of these really delicate conversations that should rightfully require a lot of preparation because you really do need to say it right. Uh, but I'm not going to do that in typical fashion. I'm just going to jump right in and we'll see how it goes. And what I wanted to talk about is just kind of an open-ended conversation talking about estate planning. So in my mind, when we talk about second generation FI, there is this implied fact that we would like for our children to be able to pursue financial independence and reach financial independence kind of in the same vein that we did, maybe even a little bit easier. But there is another end to that where we really don't want to end up with that child having the, the silver spoon and not appreciating the hard work that went into that, not appreciating the sacrifice that went into that, not because we want their life to be harder in any way, but we look back at our own path and we realize that the journey was a large part of this for us. It, it kind of helped, it made us who we are. If we had been given it, we wouldn't have appreciated it in any way, shape, or form. Um, in fact, there might have been almost this rebellious tendency just to blow it. And so I'm, I'm curious in your mind, Brad, how when you look at your children, you know, and, and you could choose between them just having $20 million waiting for them or watching them make these choices like Marlo is making to be a little bit frugal, to be a little bit intentional, to jack up that savings rate, to explore their passions and their curiosities and to build small businesses around them. How will you evaluate whether or not you are passing those values down or whether or not you're just giving your child a silver spoon that could ruin them? Wow, Jonathan, that's uh, yet again, you sandbagging me on something of the utmost importance that I have not thought of. <laughs> Score one for the home team. <laughs> yep, yep. You are quite, quite good at this. But yeah, I, I'll kind of stream of consciousness. Think about it here. So I certainly think there's a lot to be said for for going it alone in life and kind of doing it the hard way, forging your own path in essence, right? So I think there was and continues to be a lot of satisfaction that Laura and I have that that we basically 
made ourselves out of really not much. You know, like we did all this savings on our own with our own plan and we put it into action and look at where we are now, right? So I definitely, I think there's a lot of value in that, but I also think there's a lot of value in not spending 15 years in jobs like we did that we didn't especially love just to get to this point. So for me, this is something that I will have to grapple with on do we want to pass a significant amount of money to our children just because they turn 22 or something, right? Like, or 25, and then allow them to explore their lives as they see fit with the values that we've instilled in them all along the way, which I believe will set them up for wonderful lives, whether they have to work a nine to five and grind it out for their phi number themselves, or if we help them significantly along that path. So I think that's like, that's something that I would have to really strongly consider because really at that point I would probably be in a position to help them so significantly that they don't have to spend those 15 years. And that's not nothing, right? Like if you have an 80 year lifespan, that's almost 20% of your life that I would basically be saying like, Hey, just go do this because I did it. Right. Whereas I could take a step back and say, no, is that really how I want my children to be living their lives? And I think they have a lot to add to the world. And I think the values that we have instilled in them and the things that we've talked about, like, I think it will set them up. But honestly, Jonathan, I don't know, I don't know like what I could do as guardrails at this point. I suspect people in our audience might have some feedback, which which would be kind of cool just to further this conversation, maybe on, on our Facebook group would be a, a perfect logical place for it. But are there guardrails I could put into place? Would there be things like Marla's family did where they asked for reports back and, hey, how did you spend it? What are the lessons you've learned? Like, I don't anticipate that I'm gonna be sitting there like doling money out to my kids. So again, this is stream of consciousness here, so bear with me. But but I, I hope maybe, Jonathan, you can see like what I'm grappling with. Like, how how do you like tangibly go about that and not have your kids waste so many years of their lives doing something that they don't want to, but instead pursue something that they get value out of, out of life. Yeah. And I, and I got to think that there are some litmus tests that you can use along the way. You know, it's not, it's not suddenly they're going to be at 22 and now you're deciding whether or not to give them this trust fund that's been aside for set aside for them since basically birth. There's got to be like what Marla had in her life. There's got to be these kind of litmus tests that you can just kind of use to see where your child is on this path. I have a pretty, I have a pretty solid amount of time to figure this out. You are way closer to having to figure this out than I am. So I feel like this is one of those things where this is why me and you have two shows a week so we can grapple with these concepts and, and verbalize them and commit to something and then get feedback to say, wow, that was dumb. That was wrong. We should probably, you know, move the needle a little bit or refine these ideas. That's the value of the conversation as opposed to the mic drop. I think that the idea of suddenly leaving your 65 year old child $5 million, $10 million is kind of silly at that point because they will either have made it, it's just too late, you know, to really have an, any sort of significant impact on their life. So I'm not one, and I'm also not one to say that you should just not give your child inheritance at all. I think Mr. 1500 uh, has come out very strongly and said that he does not believe in inheritance. Now, I don't know as his children get older, if that, you know, will that position will move slightly over time, but that is his natural bias based on what he has seen and the experiences that he has, you know, lived out himself. He does not believe in inheritance. 
I am not in that camp. And I definitely want my child to have an easier path, to have some built-in advantages. But I also don't want to see them ruined by that and have them see lives that basically are, you just look and you can say, wow, that was a waste of, you know, the 80 years that you were given. But the idea of impact, you know, finding the work you love and doing it because you love it, not because you're trying to figure out how to keep the lights on, you know, that has real appeal for me. And I feel like as we start talking about second and third generation FI, I think that in some way can be the litmus test. And I think it's very cool because there are a lot of jobs that are so important. They are so needed. They are so necessary and they are so underfunded. And if you're only doing it because of the money, then it's it's probably a bad strategy. And so I think that all of this kind of shifts. And so I'm still grappling with this, but yeah, I definitely think it's something that we'll probably end up talking about a lot more and we'll bring on people to highlight how they're grappling with it as they probably have children that are a little bit older than ours and what they've seen, what's worked, what hasn't worked. I think it has to be part of the conversation, right? Yeah, I agree. And I would definitely echo your sentiments that I am definitely not anti-inheritance at all, but I don't want to screw up my kids, right? So like, I think that's, that is my overriding concern. And I don't think they will be because of all those lessons over decades that I'll have taught them. So yeah, you can't even buy a $400 TV. <laughs> yeah. Without Anna going crazy. So yeah, I can't imagine that, that she's going to have any issues. And Molly, it's still a little, little too early to tell. She seems like slightly more of a spender than Anna, but, uh, but I guess that's a low bar, right? So yeah, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. All right, cool. Well, with that all being said, are you ready to hop into this episode with Alan and Talis? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. So Alan, Talis, welcome back. Talis, this is our second coaching call. And I know at the end of that first call, there was a pretty hefty to-do list. So um, how have things been going? So things have been going well. I did have a pretty long to-do list. And from that list, I've been able to do a couple cool things. First of all, I did secure a domain. I went through Wix because I'm familiar with that platform builder. So I set up a website. I haven't done a lot of design with it. I've just uploaded photos and gotten some copy ready, but I really haven't messed with how it looks on the front end a whole lot. I also set up a meeting with a couple directors of some retirement facilities that I had contacts with here in the area, and they're super excited to host them. We're calling them workshops, but they're very uh, happy to host workshops for people to come who are interested in either growing the program as participants or teaching, being other people who would offer the, the classes on site. We haven't talked about any sort of cost for that. They're happy to offer their space for free and allow people to come. So I haven't done anything more with how I might charge a fee for people to maybe do the training. That's one thing I wanted to talk about today. And then the other really big thing is I did a survey with my current class. I set up a survey for them to fill out before they came into class. I asked them how they were feeling. I asked them to select from a group of about 10 different words that might describe how their body felt and they could circle up to three. And then I asked to rate their happiness level on a scale of one to five, one being really unhappy and five being, you know, over the top, super happy. And then I had them do that again at the end of class. And then I also asked them to write any comments regarding why they came to class, what they most enjoy uh, doing in class, and what their recommendation would be. And so this was about 15 participants that filled this out. Most of them were people with Parkinson's, and then there were 
three spouses that also filled out the survey. So that was really cool to see that feedback. So I can go into depth with that if you want, but that's just kind of a, a recap of where I've been, what I've been focusing on. I love that because last call we spent some time talking about how do you measure whether it works or not and how do you see. So what was the happiness score pre and post workshop? So it's interesting. I think I work with a lot of optimistic people because most of them came in saying that they were already happy. So at the end of class, they had either maintained their happiness or they were super happy, which was kind of fun. Most people didn't come in saying, oh, yeah, I'm you know, at the top of my game right now. So I think it did go up or I maintained for in terms of their, how their bodies were feeling. That was really interesting because at the beginning of class, most of them said stiff, sore, achy, tight. And toward the end of class, people had circled words like relaxed and loose and open. So that was kind of interesting. What I found to be most interesting in terms of the comments and the open-ended questions, almost every piece of feedback was in regards to social benefit of class. Pretty much nobody said, oh, I come to get exercise. Oh, I come here to move my body. It was all around, I come here to be around people, to see my friends, to support my spouse, to dance with my husband. So that was really interesting to me that it, it for them, it's more about the social impact than a physical benefit. They are getting the physical benefit as well through that feedback. That's fantastic. So they're getting it. The reason they come is the social and then they get the physical benefit as well. Yeah. So I just kind of uploaded all of those results into a document on the computer. So I have that data to save. And then I would like to do that again, probably quarterly with this group, but then obviously offer that to new classes as well, just to kind of keep and, and I can refine it as well. I don't think it's a perfect survey by any means, but it worked pretty well for this group. I love the, uh, the refining aspect, the ability to iterate something. I mean, you're going to, first of all, just now you're collecting testimonials and you've moved from, you had this resource before, but you weren't really turning that into something that you could then show somebody else. And there's so much value to collecting those true testimonials. Right. Definitely. I'd love you to share the document with me, Talis. I'd love to have a look at the numbers and just thinking about it. uh, Happiness might not be the scale that you're improving. Because the social aspects, maybe there's some other words, because mm-hmm. it, it's just so interesting about the question you ask so affects the feedback you get. Um, so it might not be happiness because they're an optimistic bunch. It sure. might be how connected to the community, how completely random one, how in love with your partner are you? How connected to other people are you? There's definitely some one to five scales, some different ones, maybe other than happiness uh, that we should explore. And it took us quite a few times to work out the different scales we wanted to measure. I think teasing out more of just riffing off what Alan said, that idea of how connected do you feel to your partner? You know, like that idea of support, do you feel like your partner supports you more? You know, is there a way to measure that? I'm just going, I'm just playing off what Alan's saying, but with the specific words that you're using, I wonder if if they're saying they're coming to support each other, I wonder if there's a way to measure, does the partner feel more supported after doing something like this? Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. It'd be interesting to do that if I was able to set up a class or a workshop that was really geared more toward the couple. Because right now I'm playing to a little bit broader of an audience because the majority of people come by themselves. So we don't do partner work the whole time. 
And it's not necessarily a focus on the relationship directly for the people that do come with their spouses, but I could see the benefit of really targeting that audience and providing just a class for people who want to come with their spouse or their caregiver. I think that's fantastic. I think the other thing we can do based on your feedback, which actually might help sell it to the retirement facilities, is almost a word cloud transition or some kind of people on average come in stiff, achy, not feeling great in their body, and they leave loose and happy and relaxed and all the other words. I think that's an incredible sales tool to be go out with to show here's the top three words people come in with and here's the top three words people go out with. Just a thought, do the the retirement communities put on a program of activities for their retired people at those different facilities? They do. Most of them, if not all, have an exercise program of some sort that they do on site. Cool. And do you know if they measure the impact of that stuff? No, I do not. My assumption is with the two that I'm working with right now that they don't currently do something like that but I don't know that that that's actually the case and it might be at different facilities that they do some sort of a measurement I think it's pretty casual in most cases it's rare at least in this area that you have some people leading the classes for exercise that have a really targeted focus it's pretty generally based exercise does that make sense So what do you think the retirement facilities care about most when they're putting on this stuff? Well, the conversation we've had is, is for one, their residents are always looking for something different. They like to change it up so that people stay engaged and they feel like there's a lot of different options for them to participate in at that community. So for current residents, that's the benefit. And many of these people grew up in a, in a generation where dance in particular was a thing that they did as young people. So there's the nostalgia aspect for these people that are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s of, of listening to music and thinking about ballroom dancing. So they, they love that and they're all about that. The other thing that's a benefit for putting on a workshop and inviting people to come that may have Parkinson's that aren't current residents is that they see it as the retirement facility directors see it as an opportunity for them to show off their space to people that might actually want to come and live there if they need to and when they get to that assisted living situation. Cool. And they've promised to give you the space for free. I guess the key is who's going to actually fund you to do the workshop. Right. So I think that... (laughs) I need some help with this for sure, but I like the idea of of putting together a program for people who would like to teach the material and ask them to pay for it. Now, these might be people who work for these organizations and the, the larger retirement facilities would pay for the training for that individual to then offer this on an ongoing basis to their community because Talis isn't going to be there every single time to offer this class for their residents. But if they were to pay for one of their staff to be trained to offer this programming, then they could keep that ongoing for the residents. That's where I'd like it to go. I think that that, in my mind, works pretty well. Um, but it's, I haven't thought about pricing and necessarily how to package that so that they're finding the right person that maybe already works in their staff to take that on. Did you think any more about the sponsorship for the classes that we spoke about last time? 
I did a little bit. I haven't really come up with a great option. I'm not giving up on that. But I think in Des Moines, there might be a possibility to get some sponsorship from a company. I really, I haven't talked to any of the drug companies that were at that conference. That's okay. So with the drug companies at the conference, was there a reason that you didn't follow up on that one? I didn't prioritize it in my list. And honestly, I don't know yet how I feel about going that route. It may or may not be a a good fit. I just really, I haven't investigated it. Cool. Excellent. So it wasn't anything to do with the confidence of picking up the phone and speaking to them. It was just further down the list. No, I just, I think I wanted to kind of flesh out some of these other ideas first. I really like the idea of, of putting together and what, and I have been setting up a little tour of going to these retirement facilities and seeing if, if there's how many people in the area are interested in being served, you know, for this particular service for Parkinson's. How do you feel about charging the people who actually come along to the classes? Hmm. I don't know that that's something that I wouldn't do. I have a funny perspective because I've been spoiled in that the class that I currently teach is funded through a local chapter of the American Parkinson's Disease Association. So they've decided to allot the funds for my class so that anybody in the citywide area can come and take the class for free. So my perspective is that, oh, these people come and they get to take the class for free. And they're used to that. So then would they pay for it? And if they were going to pay for it, how much? So it's not that I don't think that they they would. I just haven't been in that situation yet to ask them directly to pay for it. So I don't I don't know how that would change their opinion. I and I, I don't know that I couldn't just ask my current students, you know, if, if you were needing to pay for this class, would you and how much would be appropriate? I, I feel like I could ask my current students that question and see what their feedback is. Yes, because you built up plenty of trust with them over the period of doing the course. Right. Have you spoken to the American Parkinson's Disease Association about continuing the workshops and the work? Uh, just the the organizer of the local chapter here, he and I have talked. And so the funds, I mean, in terms of as long as they're able to raise the funds, he'll keep the class going in this market as long as possible. Now, I haven't talked to an organizer in another city to see if we could create that same sort of relationship. And I, I don't know that that would be unsuccessful if the funds are there, I can show the benefit. So that's a route that I would like to pursue first, definitely. Uh, There's a for- um, Sorry, group of us. I got invited to help kick off a fundraiser for a specific course that they want to do between a university. It's a medical university with students who are interested in this kind of work and working with people with Parkinson's and their idea, this is not my idea, but I think it's an amazing idea is to partner the students, the medical students with the people with Parkinson's in a dance class. For example, I would be teaching the class. I would be teaching salsa. One partner has Parkinson's and one partner is a medical student and it's an eight week program. So they're piloting this and they've asked me to help them organize it they want to do a fundraiser, kind of a Dancing with the Stars type of fundraiser to raise the money for that class, just for that eight-week class, which I think is really interesting. And I think that that will provide me with some contacts to then expand upon that idea. That's happening in Des Moines right now. 
That's fantastic because then that's definitely something replicable you can do in other places. Right. So it seems to me that we got two main bits here. Who's going to pay and how much do we charge? Mm -hmm. Is that your thinking as well, Talis? Yeah, that's that's my thinking. And and when I think about you know how much the cost is for my time and setting up the class and travel and whatever you know, it's not that hard to get there. The class that I teach currently is I'm paid $85 an hour to provide the class for as many people as, as want to come. So it could be for five people or it could be for a hundred people. And I'm paid the same. The place where I rent space is very cheap. And so that works really well. So I would need to get to about that same point to replicate an hour long class in other places. And so if I asked people to pay, you know, five to ten dollars a piece it would get close but I don't know I I found in the past when I've taught other kinds of dance classes is you don't ask people to pay enough if you ask them too little then they don't take it as seriously so there's kind of that like magic window of of how much the class should cost so that they know that they're committed right and I get what I need to pay the rent at the studio and still take away what I need to then get the materials and and keep this thing going definitely and there's different payment structures and models we had a lady at the first ever pop-up business school called emma who was a yoga teacher and at the time she was doing pay as you go for her yoga classes which were around about five pounds a class and what she suffered from was that people would come to one class pay the money on a pay-as-you-go basis, but then maybe not come back to the next class. And they didn't necessarily have the commitment to come regularly. Uh, Mm -hmm. If it was cold or raining, they wouldn't leave their house. Uh, If they felt tired, they wouldn't leave their house. Some of them loved it and they came and they always loved it when they got there, but they had some, some reticence to coming. We actually worked with her to change from a pay-as-you-go charging model. She changed to have three different price points. She put the pay-as-you-go up to £7 per session. She had a book 10 in advance, and it was 5 per session. Or if you do a monthly recurring direct debit where the money just comes out on a monthly basis then you could come to as many as you want. And if you came to them all, the average price would be £4. The benefit of that was, A, people liked signing up to the direct debit where they paid monthly because they got a far cheaper price. B, she absolutely loved it because she would know how much she's got coming in each month before the month even started. So she'd have X number of participants signed up to the courses that would pay up front and see the benefit to the participants that was the really unexpected thing was they ended up turning up for every single workshop because they'd already prepaid. Um, So they got far better health benefits. They enjoyed it more. They saw more progress. They lost weight. Like everyone won out of doing a regular payment rather than a pay-as-you-go model. Uh, So I think thinking about the different models we can use to charge the participants and the benefits to them for signing up for longer. Great. I love that. Just on the other side, in terms of the train, the trainer for the retirement facility staff, I think that's a fantastic thing to do. 
I think there's actually a big enough model, uh, there's a big enough market for you to be able to do that just for retirement communities to teach them how to run these events. Uh, I think you've got an incredible package that you've started to work on, which you could supply the retirement community with the marketing materials. You could train their staff how to deliver it, and you could show them how to measure the impact on the physicality of their members, which would help them sell more people coming to their retirement communities. I think you've got an incredible package to sell to them and they would pay a far higher value for your workshops than you would get selling them directly to the consumers. Do you know, could you help me with that pricing? I wouldn't even know where to start with how to price that out in terms of that package. So in terms of pricing, let me sort of give you where I am. So I ran a lot of corporate training sessions for big organizations. So I would train Microsoft how to present. I would train Pepsi how to do PowerPoint. Yeah, I think that was actually my favorite one was teaching Microsoft how to use PowerPoint. But for those workshops, when I first started in terms of my confidence, I was around about 500 to 700 pounds a day for my workshops. As my confidence increased, that amount increased as well to 1,000 to 1,500 pounds a day. And I think just to see the other end of the market, to see where this goes, and I didn't really realize this at the time. First time I ever went to Microsoft to sell a course, I went in, we had a fantastic meeting the learning and development director really liked the pitch I gave him. And then you get that bit at the end where he says to you, so how much is the course? And I had butterflies in my stomach. I didn't quite know what to say. And I just kind of blurted out, it's 950 pounds. And I felt like I didn't want to be over a thousand because it was, it was too expensive. And you could see in his face that, it was like I'd said the wrong thing. And I was thinking, what have I said? I've said too much. He's not going to buy it. It's all wrong. And I had to fight with all my heart to stay silent whilst he came back to me. And he actually looked at me and said, uh, okay, how about we settle on a thousand and fifty pounds and I'll pay you that. I was kind of stunned. I said, yes, it's the only time someone has ever offered to pay me more than I've asked for. And I later found out he was paying for other corporate courses, £10,000 a course. Wow. And he was a bit embarrassed to uh, pay less than 1000 He thought no one would take it seriously. Oh, wow. So I think we need to sort of think about where the market is. And there is a definite bit that people equate cost to quality. And rightly or wrongly, if you charge too cheap, people will think it's not any good. So we need to sort of work that out where we are. One way to do that is I bet you there's other companies out there that supply training courses to retirement facility uh, employees. So doing a ring round to find out what they charge and then positioning ourselves in the part, uh, in the market is one way to do it. The other way to do it is the ones you're already friendly with. Have a chat, tell them your plan, and ask them what they already pay for similar type courses from other people. And then I guess the third way to do it is let's just do a test pitch. 
in an area that you maybe like is less important for you. So let's pick a couple of retirement facilities in a state that you're not going to go for to start with, like maybe Alabama or somewhere completely random that's nowhere near you. And let's ring up a few, pitch them the idea, see if they're interested, tell them the price and get some feedback. I like that idea. And I have nothing against Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) The other half of that is once you have proof of concept, so this isn't your first one anymore, where you start isn't where you finish. So you need to get a model that you're comfortable with when you unroll it. But as you have credibility, you have proof of concept, you have people referencing you, hey, this facility over here used us and they loved us and you can check with them if you want some feedback. Obviously, your rates can rise with the brand that you're building. Sure, definitely. And doing that first one for the people you already know, that would definitely allow you to have a testimonial from a retirement facility director saying this is fabulous. It's helped us do this, this and this, uh, which does help to have that proof when people are buying. May I add one last thing on price? Yes, please. The entrepreneurs that I work with in the UK, quite often when they start, price is so closely related to confidence. And when people are starting, they're not necessarily that confident. They're just like, please give me the business. I want to do it. They're not that confident. That means that they don't always ask for the price they should be asking. I guess one example of that is there's this fabulous guy in the Longmont pop-up business school that we did that was selling guides on creative writing. And it was a downloadable ebook. But it was his guide. It was all his ideas. How much do you think he was charging for his guide? Something really low, like 30 pounds, 20 pounds. $1.99. What? Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, I looked at it and went, it's $1.99. I wouldn't waste my time on it. I want the best. Yeah. And I'm kind of making that judgment without ever reading it, without knowing if he's good. I've just made a judgment based on price that this can't be any good. And I think there's this piece that people think if the price is too good to be true, it must be too good to be true. It's not going to deliver quality. So I would rather you charged a decent price and you had a few, wow, that's more than we were expecting and you can always negotiate down rather than that seems too good. Let's not follow up. So Talis, what's a reasonable price? Well, I mean, I just don't have a benchmark. I know that. So when Alan was talking about like 950 to over a thousand, like that's, that's about kind of where I was shooting for, but it's a little scary to go into this retirement facility and not really know what they're paying for other services that may or may not be like this. And just to throw that out, kind of like you were in that situation, but I would feel confident starting at at least 850 with what I have. Cool. And the offer on the other side, what exactly are we providing them for that price? So that would be the marketing materials. That would be the training course for their staff person or persons. We'd have to maybe, I'd have to maybe look at that a little bit more. The music. So maybe this would up the price as well, because what I just got to thinking before when you were talking about the package was that I'd like to have, I have a a friend who's a composer who's worked for my class before. She plays live music for us quite often. 
I'd like to have her develop a soundtrack that we could then sell with the materials. Um, so we don't get into any licensing issues with the music and I could actually provide the instructors with the music that's actually necessary to do the class. That would be part of it as well. And then that, that measurement scale so that they could actually assess the participants who are in the program. So when I say it out loud, I mean, that's kind of a beefed up package, right? That sounds like an amazing package and it's everything they need to get straight out there and rock it. I think that's a fabulous package. I think you should start with 1500 or two grand and see how it goes. Okay. Yeah. And it'd be cool actually then to offer them updated music, updated materials that they could then, you know, pay for ongoing if they so choose. Yeah. And if it goes really well and you've taught them salsa, then you can teach them the next dance style and the next dance style the next year and expand their skills. Mm -hmm. I love that. You've automatically built in a recurring business model. One of my concerns with what you just mentioned initially was that you have the customer, you unroll it to that customer and then you're out, you know, and so now you have to constantly find the new facility. But if you start building in the specific classic deals that you're doing, now you can go back to that retirement facility and say, okay, this is the next one that I'm offering. And so you bring them back in. And because you just said that the retirement facilities are looking for something new, right? That builds the demand right. for you. Right. Well, yes, I just absolutely. was thinking it's kind of like the Zumba model, right? Where Zumba's like, okay, now we're at Zumba. That would be a pretty easy pricing model to find out. I'm sure it's publicly available on the internet. What would oh, it cost sure. for somebody to go all in on Zumba? you know, for a facility or for something like that. So I bet you that in terms of finding what, how things are being priced. And also when you're thinking about marketing, you don't need to create marketing from the ground up. You can, in many cases, find somebody that's in a similar space, find out what is it that they're doing that you feel like works and then adapt the part of that that serves a business model that you're using. That's what you do with website design. That's what you do with almost any type of any type of media marketing. You're never starting from scratch, or very rarely you're starting from scratch. You're taking what someone else has done, and you're iterating it for yourself, so you're not starting from the ground up, but you can go ahead and get the thing close to where it needs to be and then build from there. Right. And just in terms of size of the market... In 2015, there was 15,836 assisted living facilities in the USA. Hey, Alan, with a helpful statistic. Yeah, it's not often we get helpful statistics, but the market's huge and you have an aging population. I think the market's only going to get bigger. Right. And for these assisted living facilities, for these models, it's all about creating their own personal brand. Their, Their entire business model is based around being the place that people want to age into talking about a design of design your future, right? That's what it, that's right. what these places are trying to position themselves as is the place you want to be as you need more and more care. And you're going to want to be somewhere that's going to keep you engaged, keep your partner engaged. So I just, when you start thinking about the verbiage you're using with the marketing, when you start thinking about the language that you're using to describe this, you're always adding value back to the facility. Definitely. Yeah. Tell us, I have one piece to give you on asking the price that I will, I think will help massively. When people raise their tone at the end of a sentence, what does it mean? They're asking a question? Yeah, it's either that or they're Australian. It's where everything <laughs> you say sounds like a question. Even if it's a statement, it's really right. annoying. <laughs> um, I, have family in, I have family in Zimbabwe and overseas, and that is, when I'm with them, I immediately notice that I finish every sentence as a question. So we're going to be going to dinner tonight, huh? 
You know, it's just every, that's just how the, how, how we finish sentences over there. That's so funny. Let's just not be too sure about anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> when else do people use that tone? So it doesn't just happen when people are asking a question. Well, usually they're, yeah, they're either asking a question or they're not confident in what they're stating. Absolutely. And what I've seen so many times is entrepreneurs that are launching new businesses that will look at you and they'll say the price is uh, $1,500. Right. And they're going to get negotiated with. And people know that's not the actual price. There's no confidence there. It It's a real struggle for them to get the money they need. Um so there is a second one as well. What does it mean if your tone stays strong, sort of flat and strong at the end of your sentence? That you mean what you say? Yeah, it's the statement tone. It's a fact. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. There's 1,500 assisted living facilities in the USA. There's 1,500 assisted living facilities in the USA. <laughs> there sounds doubt in their voice. So statement mm -hmm. tone allows you to hit them with the price in a way that gets them that they believe that is the price and they trust it. And just for completeness, there's one other tone that goes at the end of a sentence. What does it mean if your tone goes down at the end of a sentence? Ooh. Not good, right? How do you mean not good? You're like foreboding something to not be good if your tone goes down at the end of a sentence. It's Shall almost I give like you a telling demo? the person, you shouldn't take this offer. Ah, uh, not necessarily, not exactly that. Um, let's imagine for a second you had kids and you were asking them to tidy their room. You would have three endings. Question would be, tidy your room? They may or may not listen to you. You've got statement, which is tidy your room. And then you've got the final one, which is tidy your room. Oh, so it's a demand is what you're saying. Yeah, it's the command tone. Oh, okay. I didn't, sorry, I didn't get that by your tone going down. Okay, it's a demand. Yeah, it's the command tone. So if you hung around with the military or the police, do you hang around much with the police, Talis? I don't, no. If you did, they're trained to use the thing. command tone. <laughs> well, they're nice people as well. Definitely. Um, but they're trained to use the command tone. So if you could imagine right. a police officer in the middle of the road trying to get pedestrians to the sidewalk, if they were to say, uh, would you mind going to the sidewalk? No one would listen to them. So they're trained to use the command tone to get people to listen to them. And our ability as entrepreneurs to flex our voice to change to statement tone or question tone at the right times when asking about conditions, when negotiating price will directly impact people's response to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's an important one when we start asking for the money especially if we think it's a bit higher than we should be asking for. If there's doubt in our voice, they'll hear it. Right. And I think that that's something that we aren't cognizant of often. So that's a good point to have awareness of. Awesome. So how are you going to get these retirement facilities? Because I think this is a really neat little product that we could just start to sell to them. So I need to refine the package materials so I have that all neat and tidy. But I don't think that there's any harm in approaching this contact that I know fairly well um, at this pretty large facility here in the area to just seek some feedback from her on what their other services are like that they're currently paying for and maybe to just get her thoughts on the value of the different pieces in the package. I think that's a great first step. 
I would add one piece here. I wouldn't spend your time creating the package before you've sold it. One of the foundational principles at the pop-up business school uh, is yeah. sell your value before you create it. So right. like, let's not bother getting the music produced, designing right, the right, marketing, right, right. any of that before we've sold it. Um, right. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking in terms of just pitching to her, if this were a piece of it, if this were a piece of it so that, yes, it's not produced yet, but just to get the thoughts on how much value that would be. I wouldn't even tell her it's not produced yet. I'd just say, this is what we do. And it is what you do. You already run the course. You're just right. going to teach them how to do it. Um, and I would say learning from my mistakes, when I first launched the pop-up business school, I found out that at the time there was about five or 600 housing associations in the UK that I would be selling to. How many of them do you think I approached to buy pop-up business school? A few. Yeah, like 15 or 20. Uh, what do you think I wish I did? Many more. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> many, many more. <laughs> I wish total. I'd gone out to the lot. Go big, go big. But you might get actually... denied. Someone might tell you no. <laughs> The no's are coming, Jonathan. The no's are coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if we contact 500 across your state, we might get 400 no's, but you'll get a fantastic range that say yes, and you'll build a business almost overnight. I think people are hesitant to do that because they're scared of getting too many yeses or they're scared of getting too many no's. Yeah, I think it's both. Right. And, and just think about that on on both sides of that street. One is that you only need one yes, right? Once you have your yes, you're off to the races. And also just the possibilities when you realize you're not all in on one hand. The entire future of your business does not depend on this one phone call that you're going to make with a cold pitch and you know you get it wrong. And now you can't, you can't pursue this business. In fact, let's say you do cold call your first business and you talk to them and you give them this pitch and no matter how perfect you are with it, they, at the end of it say, yeah, I just think, you know, I really like the idea, but right now it's not in our budget. You know what the next thing you can say is? What? Absolutely. Totally understand. It, first of all, would it be okay if I read, you know, we, I could reach out to you again later on at another time. And also, do you know if there's any other assisted living facilities that might be interested in something like this leverage their network? First of all, they always, they already feel bad that they listened to your whole pitch and they just turned you down Two, they have a network. You're in their network and they'd be more than happy to think of maybe a few people that you might be able to reach out to. And then, you know what? You could do the, I mean, that immediately sets you up for who the next person to talk to. And now you're talking to someone from the inside. I was speaking with the retirement facility over in Chesterfield and they mentioned that you might be interested in a new program that we're putting together. So it's just, there is something to be said for leveraging someone's network, even someone that's told, you no. Yeah, definitely. I love that. And there's one thing for me is the length of time to sail. So if you're ringing a retirement community, uh, they're not going to book immediately and have you run it next week. They're probably going to schedule it into a program of training that they're already running over the year. So I would expect it's going to take between one to five months to get those in. So if we mm -hmm. contact two and try and sell them, then run the program, then it'll be another five months before we get the next deal. Right. What I would do is go big, go out to lots of people, and then we're starting to build a pipeline of sales that will come through afterwards as we go. And we're also building up the contacts that we can do.
just to highlight that as part of your pitch, when you say, well, now I am actually booked up through the next six months. So the first time I'll have available to schedule would be in November. You're, you're building limited availability into your pitch. Right. There's that credibility there that other people have already booked it. Absolutely. So I guess the next question after that is how do we go about selling it? Because I think all we need is a brief outline of what it is. We can send some emails to the people at the retirement facilities and then we can make some phone calls, which I'd be happy to do with you. And we could work on how to do it. And I think we've got a great product that we can start getting some feedback on. Yeah, that's awesome. Excellent. The one bit on feedback, I use the word feedback. The only way to know if your business will be successful or not is to actually ask someone to buy, not to ask for their feedback. Mm. What we found after doing a load of different workshops is that people go out to people they know and they ask, what do you think about my idea? So I'm running a new workshop. What do you think about my idea? And most people will be nice to you. Right. (laughs) Which is not good feedback. It doesn't actually tell you if they'll buy or not. When they say something nice, like, yeah, that sounds great. That's when you lean in, stare them in the eyes and say, it's only $2,000. Would you like to buy? (laughs) Yeah, the only moment you get real feedback is when you ask someone to take their checkbook out of their pocket and give you money. Up until that point, they will be nice to you. Talis, do you get the feeling that Alan isn't alive until he does that question? Like that's that's the moment right there where he's, I'm in, let's do it. Definitely, (laughs) definitely. Oh, it's fun. But you need to move to that. I mean, honestly, there's value to getting to the point where you're actually, you're not afraid of asking that question. You're excited. So now you've done this pitch. This is your moment. And you're not viewing it as they're not rejecting you. This isn't an acceptance or rejection of Talus. This is, I've made a pitch. I'm about to get actual feedback on my pitch right now. Would you like to buy? Right. Yeah, it's exciting. And it's all about the uncomfortable pause afterwards. Right. Just go watch some Curb Your Enthusiasm to tee yourself up for it. Just watch a few episodes of that and you'll be ready to go. Uh, All right. I'll write that down. I'm really excited about this. I think you've got a fantastic product that you can sell that will get your workshops out there and help people. And then you're removing yourself as the blocker to running all the workshops and spreading the message far wider. Now, this is kind of cheating to us, but let me go ahead and throw it out there. Chooseify has a growing network of people, and some of them probably work in different assisted living facilities, and some of them might even be interested in reaching out to you with maybe a contact or someone that you could talk to. Uh, What would be a good way for people to connect with you and maybe give you their feedback? That's awesome. Actually, I'm part of the group on Chooseify. They can actually find me there if they're part of the group, and they can message me via Facebook. That would be a great way to start. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll make that happen. Alan, is that go to leveraging your network? I love that. Yes. And that's a cool network as well. Yes. Thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome. Glad to help. Well, I'm excited about this for sure. I'm going to start putting a list together for some cold calls. And Alan, if you are available to talk with me about that pitch, that would be awesome. Yeah. I'm around anytime. Just let me know and let's have a chat. Great. All right, guys. That's going to bring this episode to a close. I'm so excited to get a chance to share this information with you. I really think that this is what building a business has to look like. I mean, this is a new framework, but it's the same steps that are repeatable and translatable to almost any business model. Take the part of this conversation that helps you where you are. 
Well, unfortunately, that is going to bring this episode to a close, guys. Now, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. And there are three books that we normally do. The first book is J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. The second book is Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future. And the third book is by Vincent Puglisi, Freelance to Freedom. If you want to enter the drawing, all you need to do is just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions there and leave us a short written review and then send an email to feedback at chooseify.com letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get and we announce a winner on the Friday Roundup. Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, we have one winner today and the winner is Keiko. And Kiko says, I'm new to this financial independence freedom concept and have been gobbling up many podcasts and blog sites. I find Chooseify to be one of the few that doesn't bore or discourage those of us who are not 20-somethings, young and woke to the idea of saving a lot more, a bit too late in the game. They still give those of us hope that Fi is achievable. I appreciate that one of the hosts is still on the path to getting to Fi. There are too many blogs and podcasts out there in the Fi sphere that focus too much on those who had the good paying jobs. They started with extreme savings, they started extremely young, and they had already reached Fi. It's good to hear their stories, but it's not always inspirational when we're so very far to that point or situations are so far distant from our own. These Choose Fi guys are much more relatable, excitable, and have a variety of guests and topics to cover the grounds for a wider audience. Hooray! Yes, I am still on the path, and you know what? It is awesome. Thank you so much for the review. The fire is spreading, my friends. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.